last week, we went over a scripture which almost everyone was willing to admit that they really didn't understand 100% of at first. Today we're going to go over something considerably different. We're going to go over a scripture which almost everyone would say that they think they do understand, but which they probably don't, at least not completely, not in its, its fullness. Some of you will, but many people will not. It's an interesting passage, and it's got some deeper theology in it, almost in contradiction to what I said to you last week when, when Jesus tells a parable. Um, I said that with, with only a few exceptions, most of his parables have one or two main points. This one has a main point, and then it's got some deeper theology that we can harvest out of some of the things that it's saying. A little different than it's just on the surface main point of its lesson. Now, if you went around and talked to people, even regular church-going, Bible-reading folks, and you said to them, what was special about Lazarus in the Bible? Either people would say they don't know if they weren't really familiar with it, or they would say what? Jesus rose him from the dead. Well, yes, that did happen. But we're going to talk about the time when God didn't raise a guy named Lazarus from the dead, specifically did not when asked. And we're going to look at that passage today. And that's pretty significant also because it's got a whole different ring to it. Turn with me to Luke chapter 16, if you would. We're going to do 19 through 31. We're going to come back and hit a few of these verses later. So if you're reading out of your Bible, keep your thumb in it. 19 through 31 of Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. I love that word, sumptuously. He just ate good. It's like Thanksgiving all the time. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from us or from there 
to us. And then he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, before I I go any further, I want to point out that um, as is now getting to be more the norm than the exception, as I was listening to the communion meditation being given, I was like, wow, does that coincide almost perfectly with my sermon? You'll realize that as we get further in. Before we go into what this is teaching, Let's take a minute to just cover what this passage is not teaching. It isn't teaching that rich people with all kinds of comforts go to hell and while the suffering poor automatically go to heaven. That's not what this is teaching. Just because someone had a bad life here doesn't mean they go to heaven and just because someone had a good life here doesn't mean they go to hell. After all, Abraham, whom he was calling out to, was an incredibly wealthy man. This is a lesson Jesus is teaching to other Jews. And there were a few basics which would have been assumed by them. One is that the poor Lazarus was a devout believer in God. This is also not necessarily teaching that people in heaven and hell can see and communicate with each other. This is a parable, okay? Some aspects of it are just there to frame the story and aid in Jesus teaching the lesson he wanted to teach. So what is this teaching? If you went to the average Joe or Jane and read this to them, I think that the first thing that that they would think is that this is teaching us not to be selfish with our blessings and to be kind to those in need just like the lesson from last week was teaching. And you know what? They wouldn't be wrong. It is teaching that. But there's a bit more to it than just that aspect. When the story opens, it's kind of a set of contrasts. You've got two men. One rich, having everything he wants. One poor, having nothing. One so rich is that he's not just having items of comfort. It says that he has fine linen. But he's spending money just to show how ridiculously wealthy he is. It says that he is dressed in purple cloth. Okay? Purple doesn't make you more comfortable. Having nicer cloth than rough stuff, yes, that's just the thing to make you comfortable. But when you're wearing purple back in those days... There was one reason for it. The purple was made in a way, the only way they could make the purple dye 
took such an extensive process that it was ridiculously expensive. Usually only royalty had enough wealth to wear purple. And when you were wearing purple, it was the same reason that somebody drives a Lamborghini, okay? My Ford can go down the highway at the speed limit just the same as the guy in the Lamborghini. He's driving a Lamborghini because he wants to show off how rich he is. And yeah, he could beat me in a race too, but that's beside the point. The guy is wearing purple cloth, and it says this just to point out he's ridiculously rich to the point where he's just showing off how rich he is. The other is a man who has nothing. He is so destitute that he lays as a beggar at the gate of a mansion just hoping to get something. Hoping to get scraps. And he is in such straits that his open wounds are being licked by dogs. Now, I want to point something out. In that area, dogs were not the family wonderful household pet that you love to have around you, okay? They were considered unclean animals. These dogs running around were feral dogs that no one wanted near them. And he did not have somebody even to keep the feral dogs away, nor could he fend them off himself. The story then moves on to both of these men at completely different places in life, both of them dying, which is the common end to all. One going to eternal life, and the other going to eternal judgment. Not due to how much they had to enjoy in this life, but as all of Jesus' audience would have understood in the pre-resurrection Judaism, that it was based off their obedience to what God had instructed for his people to be doing whether they were following right and wrong according to the word of God, following what is clearly stated in Scripture. We know this because of what it says further down in the text. We're not left wondering to guess. It makes it clear to us. There is one thing we need to address here before we move on, though. In several places in Scripture including in this passage, Jesus taught that punishment in hell for the unrighteous was a real thing that he believed was going to happen. Now, some people will try to say to you, oh, Jesus is just borrowing from the Greek mythos to teach a point. That's why it uses the term Hades. Folks, there are two problematic issues with that. One, the term Hades is used here because this is written originally in Greek, and Greek uses the term Hades to refer to the land of the dead for punishment. The other is that Jesus, in several other places, he uses the terms Gehenna and Sheol when he's talking about the same thing, the place of those who go to eternal punishment. Now one, Gehenna, 
specifically, literally, is talking about a valley outside of Jerusalem that is used as the city dump, where everybody takes all their trash, and it's basically forever on fire burning off the trash. Sheol simply means the pit or the grave, meaning where your body goes when you die. Those are the literal translations. And people say, see, he doesn't actually believe in hell. He's just talking about this valley or the grave. But scripture never meant to be teaching that when you die and you're bad, your soul goes to the city dump. I don't think that happens. I don't think if you go down to the dump, you're going to see a bunch of ghosts floating around going, oh, it's terrible here. Neither does it mean that when you die, you just sit at the bottom of a hole going, well, I guess this is where I am for eternity. No, Jesus was telling them, he was using terms that they had borrowed from the common to refer to the place of eternal torment, hell. Jesus believed in it. There are a lot of people with light and fluffy, happy-go-lucky theology who claim to be followers of Christ who think that Jesus didn't know what he was talking about and have decided that hell isn't real. Some saying the wicked are just snuffed out of existence and some that they... The wicked somehow, I don't know, go to a rehabilitation center until they can become nice enough people that they get to go to heaven and everyone gets to go to heaven. I know very nice, very decent folks who proclaim both of these very unbiblical things. I want you to listen up. Here's something I want you to understand about that. If you, in the back of your mind, believe that there's no hell. If you're thinking this way, then you are telling Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who created all that there is, that he really doesn't understand theology and you need to teach him a couple of things. If that has humbled you a little bit, it was intended to do so. Don't let your emotions and how you feel about something get you into a situation where you think you understand eternity better than he who created eternity. It's a little bit embarrassing if you think about it. But anyway, moving back onto this passage. The next aspect in this parable is that the man begs for Abraham to send Lazarus to ease his suffering, if ever so slightly. Now, if it were me, and I were in that situation and had that opportunity to ask, I wouldn't ask for a dipped finger to be dripped into my mouth. I would say, can he send a fire hose, please? I'd like this flame not to be burning me. Abraham, however, makes it clear to him that it just doesn't work like that. That man had many a chance in life to ease Lazarus's suffering. Had he done so? Not even once. Not that we can see. And Lazarus couldn't do it if he wanted to. 
God had made it that never the two should meet. Once you have sealed your fate in this life, it does no good to be sorry about it in the next life. Of course, he was sorry about his wicked greed and lack of love for his brother Israelite now. Now he understood what it meant to have ignored God and what he wanted for his people to be like. In this particular parable, Jesus is pointing out the sin of selfishness with the earthly wealth that this man had. But he's pointing to that particular sin mostly because of the direction he was already going in the lesson that we went over last week, which came just before this. And while he was teaching this to his disciples, it specifically points out that he was talking to his disciples. He was very conscious that his disciples were not the only audience. There were other people there listening. And I want you to see what it says in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. This was one of their chief issues, selfishly ignoring the needs of those who are suffering in their midst. And so he focuses on this particular sin for them to hear it. But it's clearly meant to be a lesson to bring repentance from all the sins that people are currently enjoying or entrapped in, not just money selfishness. This is for all of us, regardless of where we are. We see that from what goes on later in this lesson. So the man in the parable, he's in hell, he asks to be relieved just a tiny little bit, and he's told no. So he switches focus. And for maybe the first time, I was going to say in his life, but he's dead. So in the first time in his existence, perhaps, his mind is not set completely selfishly. However, it's still somewhat of a selfish way of thinking. He now wants this guy named Lazarus, whom he showed no mercy to in all of his life, and he knows that Lazarus can't do anything for him, but he wants him to be sent to warn his five brothers. Well, we can learn a few things from this request. One, this guy believes that his five brothers are just as big of reprobates as he was in his life. And they need a wake-up call. And two... He somehow thinks Lazarus is his gopher. He had first asked Abraham to send Lazarus to alleviate his own pain. And I don't want to go too far in reading things because this is a parable. But in my way of thinking, that's like really, 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 really selfish of him. Think about what he's asking when he says, hey, send him to you know, dip water on my tongue. He's saying, you know what? Would it be possible 
For you to have Lazarus, who suffered his whole life, and I did nothing about, would you send him to hell for a few minutes so he can ease my pain? You know, he'll maybe get a little singed, but, you know, he'll only be here for a little while. So his request is pretty selfish. Hey, can he endure some pain for a while to relieve mine a little bit? But now he wants the man whom he did absolutely nothing for in his life while that man was suffering. He wants this guy to be his messenger boy to help out his five brothers who are apparently not very good guys either. But I digress. Abraham further repudiates his request and his entire way of thinking. The first time... The answer is no for two reasons. Number one, because you don't deserve it. Number two, it's not possible. God didn't set things up like that. His second request is denied also, but for a different reason. And the reason is, it's not necessary. It's not needed. It would be a fruitless endeavor. The warning that he asks for has already been given. What the rich man has asked for, basically, is something to get his brothers to listen up and realize that their souls are in jeopardy. The obvious answer given is that this was the primary purpose of most of the Old Testament. That's why it's there. The law given through Moses was there to tell them how God wanted people to act. Hey, Israelites, you're coming out of a pagan society. I want you to act decently toward each other. I want you to be loving and kind to each other, and here are some very specific things how I want you to behave towards each other. Don't do this. Do do this. Why? Because this is bad and mean towards each other or in how you think of God, and this is loving and kind towards each other. Don't do, do do. Do do. And if that weren't enough, the law is there to tell them. But then the bulk of the Old Testament are the prophets coming to tell them, hey, you're not doing a good job at this. Here's where you're falling down on the job, Israelites and the people around them sometimes. God wants you to behave in good ways. You're doing a miserable job of it, and this is how. And by the way, this is what's going to happen if you don't straighten up. The law tells them what? The, the prophets reminds them, hey, you know how we told you to straighten up? You haven't been. Ezekiel chapter 3, 17 through 19. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. 
Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked of his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall, shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity. But you will have delivered your soul. Abraham is telling him, send them a special messenger from the dead? God has told them right from the beginning, this is right and this is wrong. And then he reminded them time after time after time. That's good enough. He says, if they don't listen to that, like you didn't listen, by the way, he's telling him, then that's their own fault. They have it there in front of them. Why won't they listen to it? And this is so very true. You know, it is very important, very, very, very important as Christians and specifically me as a preacher that we need to stress the love of God that we see acted out in real life through what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The forgiveness that is available to all people. We need to stress this love especially to non-believers and to new believers. We need to make sure that they know that the message of Jesus Christ is a message of love. We can't stress that enough, and I try to tell it to people every week. Jesus is about love and forgiveness and God's desire to be reunited with us. It is equally as important, however, that we do our duty as watchmen and warn of the pending danger. I mean, that's the single job of a watchman. Keep a lookout for some pending, looming, approaching danger and warn people of it before it overtakes them. Can you imagine if you set somebody up? Here's a nice tower. We're going to put you up 25 feet up higher than everybody else. We're down here working in the fields. We can't see the impending doom of the whomever, the Acadians or whatever, who are going to come and, and wipe us out and haul us off into slavery. Your one job is to be the watchman in the tower. And the guy goes up in the tower and everybody gets killed because he's playing on his phone. Doesn't really work like that, but you know what I mean. His job is to be the watchman and warn people, there's danger. Run from it. If he doesn't do his job, that's a terrible thing. It is a heavy responsibility. But watchmen are responsible for whether or not people hear the word of warning, not whether they listen to it. In the parable, Jesus has the characters 
argue this way. The rich man in hell says in in verses uh, 30 and 31, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He, meaning Abraham, said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Have you ever seen a video or maybe in real life when you're, uh, I don't know, talking in, in person or maybe in a conversation online where some snooty, know-it-all, atheist, anti-God person is just totally ripping on the concept of Christianity in general and God in, in, in you know, specific, and they actually make, you know, they... they they know what they're talking about, so they're able to make some points. And they're scoring points with impressionable young minds whom they are influencing to not be not believe in God. And you just wish for one second that that person would have kind of an Ebenezer Scrooge with the ghosts of Christmas moment. You know what I'm talking about? Where they're all, I know what I'm talking about, and I'm, there's no such thing as God. And then, you know, God does something like, excuse me, um, come here, I gotta talk to you. And just totally freaks them out, and snaps them back, and changes their mind. I know I have, but usually it's because I'm mad at them, and I want them to be scared. Well, guess what? If their own mother rose from the dead and went to them and said, Son, now come over here and listen to me, because you're bound to hell, and you need to straighten up. They would explain it away. I had a bad dream. Or as Scrooge says, a piece of underdone potato. They wouldn't believe it because they have already predetermined in their minds they won't believe it no matter what. If they will not look at the evidence that's there and believe it, and they'll explain anything away that they can, because they're an atheist and they hate God, they wouldn't believe it if someone rose from the dead. I don't think that that would change anything, short of maybe the second coming. And here's the top irony from this passage, though. The Pharisees, whom Jesus was aiming this parable kind of at, he's talking to his disciples and believers, but he knows the Pharisees are there, and he's kind of pointing this at them. The Pharisees did have someone return from the dead, and his name was also Lazarus. And they did not believe. He rose from the dead because Jesus rose him from the dead. A different guy named Lazarus. And they saw him risen from the dead. And do you know what their reaction was? They plotted to re-kill him. Because, oh man, this guy rose from the dead. He's kind of convincing people that we're not telling the truth. We need to kill him. You'd think they'd be like, wow, this dude rose from the dead. Maybe this guy is telling the truth. And then in the ultimate thing, another person rose from the dead that they knew of. 
Jesus rose from the dead. And what did they do? They not only didn't repent, most of them, but they created fake news and conspiracy theories to try and cover up that he rose from the dead. Oh, the apostles just came and stole his body. Paid the guards to tell lies. Instead of forgiving, I mean repenting and seeking forgiveness. The particular sins in this story are selfishness and lack of love for the man who lies at their doorstep. But it can be anything. Jesus told the story this way because of his audience. He knew that there were people listening who had a problem with being generous with their money for people who were suffering. The point was that we need to examine our own lives and see where we're not living as God would have us according to what Scripture says. Greed. Laziness. An unforgiving heart. Lust. Idolatry. Hatred. Sexual sin. A lack of love for those who are hurting or in need. Or even our own unwillingness to be a watchman for those who are in our own sphere. God has not been silent on what he desires from us. He tells us very plainly. And he warns us repeatedly to pay attention to what he said. But he is also in addition to being the guy who says this is right and this is wrong, and continuing in doing wrong without repentance will result in your damnation, he is also the guy who is standing there with open arms saying, I made it possible for you to come back. All you have to do is repent. All you have to do is accept, believe. Give yourself to Christ. Have those sins washed away by giving yourself in baptism. Come back to God. And He, like the Father in the parable of the prodigal son, will always be standing there lovingly wanting you to come back to Him. Because at the end of it all, though He tells us what's right and wrong and, and expects us to accept it, He is the one who says, there's a penalty to be paid for not doing what you're supposed to, but I already paid it. Just accept that gift. And you can come back and be in God's presence forever. Like the person in this parable, relieved of all the suffering and in God's presence for comfort for eternity. If you haven't done that, if you haven't accepted Christ, had your sins washed away, they're still there with you. 
You need to repent. Confess that you believe in God. Give yourself to Him. Be immersed and rise a new creation. And He promises that that forgiveness will wipe out all of everything that came before it. And you will be His child once again, fresh and new. Please stand.